Philippians chapter 3, I'm going to begin reading in verse 10. Philippians chapter 3, I'll begin in verse 10. But Let me open with this uh, little story before we look uh, to God's Word. A couple of weeks ago, I was out and about in the Farmville area, and one of our former youth who had been in our youth group about 20 years ago, and I had not seen since that time, uh, I bumped into her, and she said to me, Pastor Rick, you haven't changed a bit. And I smiled at her, and I thought, you're lying. <laughs> and that, you're lying to a preacher. Oh, that I wish she had been true, that it was true and not just kind, but I'm actually 30 pounds more in weight than I was 20 years ago. I possess not only a receding hairline that seems to go farther and farther back each day, but I actually have less hair everywhere else than I had. I'm filled with wrinkles. Um, we have to turn the lights on because I don't see quite as well. But we expect change, don't we? People change. Things change. Some things change for the better and some don't. With that in mind, I want to look at Philippians chapter 3, beginning in verse 10. Paul says, My goal is to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, assuming that I will somehow reach the resurrection from among the dead. Not that I have already attained the goal or am already perfect, but I make every effort to take hold of it because I also have been taken hold of by Christ Jesus. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and reaching forward to what is ahead. I pursue as my goal the prize promised by God's heavenly call in Christ Jesus. Therefore, let all of us who are mature think this way. And if you think differently about anything, God will reveal this also to you. In any way, we should live up to whatever truth we have attained. Let's pray. Father, we know your heart toward us as your children is that we grow up in you, not just in our mental knowledge, but, Lord, our heart knowledge, not just to know facts about you, but to know more about you personally. Lord, even as we might have friends that we've known for a long time and over the years we grow closer and know them better, we know that's your desire for us. Lord, as we look at this word today, help us to be honest with ourselves as we consider our own spiritual journey toward Christ-likeness, and I pray it in Jesus' name, amen. You know, in our spiritual lives, God expects change. He expects a change for the good. When a person is saved, that individual is um, blessed and that he or she receives the promised spirit of God. And, and God doesn't cast his pearl before swines. In other words, God places his spirit in an individual believer that he or she might produce fruit. We've all heard of the fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. All of these things, God's word says, in our lives should be manifest in increasing measure as God works in and through our lives. You know, I was thinking this week, God gives us so much. He equips us so much for our spiritual growth. 
He gives his spirit, as I just said. He gives us his holy word that we might know the heart and mind of God. He gives us the example of Christ and the gospels, as well as the example of other faithful prophets and apostles to whom we can look. And he gives us fellow believers. All of these things are to facilitate our growth. Well, in Philippians chapter 3, verses 10 through 16, Paul speaks directly about progress in the Christian life. He's speaking in regard to himself. He's speaking about his desire, about the things that he puts behind, about the things toward which he reaches. But he's speaking about himself in the present. And as he's speaking, God takes that word as we read it and helps us to understand that Paul's desire here should be our desire. Over the past months, we've been using a lot of $5 words periodically to speak about the various aspects of salvation. One term we've used is the term justification. When we say, when were you saved, and we speak about a point of conversion when a person believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, what we mean actually is when did you experience justification? When were you declared right by God? Now, we understand through God's word that there's nothing we bring to the table for our justification. Jesus paid it all. But when in faith we accept God's grace through Jesus Christ, we become a part of the family of God. That aspect of salvation in the past, justification. We also have, have looked briefly at that future aspect of salvation about which um, Bob just sang, what if it were today, that time when the Lord comes for us and we'll experience glorification when we will be with him, we'll see him, we'll know him even as we are known by him. And at that point, we experience the fullness of that salvation, the redemption of our bodies, and we will be forever with the Lord. But between this past experience of salvation, justification, and future experience of a glorification, we find this other aspect, which is sanctification. Sanctification means to be set apart. And, and as Christians, when we accept Christ, we have dedicated ourselves to walk with Christ, to follow him, to be set apart from the world. Now, this aspect of salvation, sanctification, is a process. It doesn't happen in a point in time. There are times when we may feel like we're taking two steps forward, one step back, but the goal of sanctification is that we would be more and more like Christ. Now, as we look at these three aspects, let's think about them just for about 30 seconds here. Justification is in the past. It's been taken care of. If you've believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, you're justified. You can't be unjustified. God doesn't renege. He's not an Indian giver. He doesn't pull back. What God bestows is there. Now, glorification, glorification is God's work. In other words, it's a future work. I was reading uh, a guy named, uh, I believe his name was Caleb Kaltenbach, and I read a quote, just went across it this morning that said, tomorrow belongs to God. And so as we look at sanctification, that's all in God's hands. By faith, we realize it's going to happen. In fact, in verse 11, Paul anticipates that. We'll look at that in a moment. But the here and now, sanctification belongs to both God and us. It's a joint work. And God's desire is that right now we enlist ourselves in the desire, in the pursuit of becoming more and more like Christ. 
In our text this morning, Paul speaks of his pursuit as a Christian toward godliness. And, and he says, if we are doing that, four things will be true of us. The first is this. If we're going to pursue Christ-likeness, if we're going to grow in our faith, progress in our faith, we must know the goal. We must know that the goal is Christ-likeness. I read the true and amusing story of a retired British couple who decided to visit in South Germany uh, down near the Austrian border, and they were traveling in their car on this vacation when their GPS broke. The 76-year-old male driver actually drove the car because the GPS was broken, malfunctioning. He drove it right into the side of a church, totaling his vehicle. He gave new meaning to drive-in church. But the problem with that individual was he lost his bearings. He lost where he was going. He, he lost the focus on his destination. You know, many people live their lives without any goals, not looking uh, toward any type of goal. Other people live their lives pursuing wrong goals. Here Paul is very clear and he stresses emphatically a very clear goal, Christ-likeness. Now speaking about himself, Paul presents his desire and, and he uses an infinitive which is to know, but it's an infinitive of purpose. In other words, I want to know, that's my goal, that's my purpose. And he says, I, I want to know, and this knowledge is not just informational knowledge, it's not a factual knowledge, but it is a personal knowledge, an experiential knowledge. You can find people theor theoretically that know something. They may can read a book on it. Todd could tell you this. Somebody could read a book on welding, and they can tell you all about it, but they haven't personally experienced it. So as much head knowledge as they have, if it doesn't translate to practical knowledge, it's not good. And so as you think about that in re relation to our spiritual life, it's not just that we know about Christ, but what Paul is speaking here is to know him experientially, to know him uh, personally. How do we know Jesus? He says, I want to know him. I want to know Christ. We know him through prayer. We know him through the study of his word. This is our textbook here, the Bible. God's desire is that we be in it each day. Every other book we read, uh, I think it was uh, Marvin Lewis, Wayne's brother, that said, this is the book, though, that reads us. God's word reads us. What does that mean? That when we open ourselves up in the study of God's word, it begins to speak to us. Maybe we're struggling with anger. Maybe we're struggling with greed, with lust. And God's word convicts us, not just to beat us down, but so that we might experience that conviction and begin to grow to being more like Christ. But Paul says here, not only to know Christ, but to know the power of, of his resurrection. In other words, think about this for a moment. Paul wanted to bottle the power of the resurrection. He wanted to grasp it. He wanted a tangible representation of the power of the resurrection in his life. I was thinking about Jesus' resurrection. Paul is saying a lot there. 
because we're just not talking here about Jesus being resurrected from the dead just as if any person. But Jesus took upon himself all of the sin of mankind in his death and then was raised from the dead. Now you and I will die and we look forward to that time when we will be resurrected when Christ comes and we have our new bodies but we carry upon ourselves our own sin until Christ relieves us from those. We're freed from this body that is weighted by sin. But Jesus Christ took all of the sin of the world, overcame it, and was raised. And so what Paul is speaking about here is a power beyond our comprehension, a power that is, that is so great that he overcame all of the sin of the world. And Paul wanted that so that he too could overcome sin. Part of the move uh, toward knowing Christ and knowing his resurrection is experiencing victory and power over strongholds, over sin in our lives, but also in a positive way. Paul wanted that power of the resurrection so that he might manifest godly virtues, peace and patience and kindness and wisdom, all of those things. But then he says a, a third thing. I want to know the fellowship of his sufferings. I mean, what? What is he saying here? I mean, to know Jesus, we're all in. To, to know the power of the resurrection, sign me up. But to know the fellowship of his sufferings. I was talking with J.D. Uh, over dinner this week and, and just talking about this. None of us wants to go through hardship. We would be foolish to say it. But when we find ourselves in that, we're able to experience, we're able to experience Jesus in a way that we never have. I, I think of William Barclay who said about, you know, I walked a mile with pleasure and it chatted all the way, but I had nothing to gain for all it had to say. I walked a mile with sorrow and not a word said she, but oh, the things I learned from sorrow when she walked with me. Paul wasn't desiring the sufferings themselves, but Paul did desire the great things that can come through it. You know, there's some people today that present a false theology. Uh, they say, well, if you're a Christian, everything's going right and if something goes wrong in your life there must be some sin that's that's from uh, from the devil that's wrong jesus addressed that himself as a wrong way of thinking in fact when people wanted to follow jesus and they saw the great crowds that surrounded him and and they thought boy this would be great just to be caught up in this festival how did jesus respond he said the son of man has no place to lay his head foxes have holes birds of the air have nests but if you follow me it's not going to be easy suffering is part of the christian life sometimes our suffering benefits others Others are encouraged. Others are challenged to come to Christ. Others are encouraged to place their faith in Christ. And so sufferings can produce good. Sometimes in our suffering, it draws us closer to God, just like um, William Barclay said in that saying I read just a moment ago. But there's another thing that suffering does. It reminds us that this isn't our eternal home. 
it, it reminds us that we're here just for a season, that our future, we're, we're in our wilderness, we're awaiting the promised land. So as difficult as they may be, Paul desired the fellowship with Christ that could come through sufferings. Well, what was the result of all of this? He says, being conformed to his death. That's what he says at the end of verse 10. In other words, knowing Christ and knowing the power of his resurrection, experience the outward um, uh, affliction of suffering. All of these things will mold me to be more like Christ and less like myself, to deny myself and to follow Christ, to prioritize God's will in our lives. When we experience the power of God, it, it's an insatiable desire to continue to experience it. When we go through sufferings, they drive us to Christ. Everything to know Christ, to know the power of his resurrection, to experience the fellowship of his sufferings, the goal of all of those things is to be like Christ. As we move to verse 11, I want to just speak about that for a moment before we move to the next point because we need some clarity. Paul says, assuming I will somehow reach the resurrection from the dead. Now, a superficial reading of this, we might say Paul's doubting his salvation. No, he's not. Because in this very same letter in chapter 1 and verse 6, speaking, we might say, from the greater to the lesser people he's counseling in the faith, he says, um, that he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. And so here, if he's not doubting them, he, the teacher of them, would not be doubting himself. And so we need to understand the somehow is the point of emphasis there. Paul did not know whether that somehow would be a martyrdom or a natural death. He didn't know whether it would be when he was in a state of freedom or in a state of imprisonment. He didn't understand the future, but he knew where he was going after his death. And so we see that Paul knew the goal, Christ-likeness. But there's a second truth about our spiritual growth. Not only do we need to understand the goal, but we actually need to pursue it. It's one thing to know where we need to be. It's another thing to begin to put one foot in front of the other as we move toward it. And so we're to put forth personal effort to our growth. My first experience water skiing was not a fun experience. If any of you water skied, you may know. For me, it was frustrating. I considered myself an athlete, but I was very humbled. In fact, for a half hour, I face-planted more than I would like to say. I just didn't get it. Finally, after an ha a half an hour, the boat driver, who was an experienced skier, said, Rick, the problem is you're trying to pull yourself up. You need to just keep your arms straight and let the boat pull you up. And it was amazing, that simple bit of evidence or a simple bit of information helped me to learn to water ski. And so I was able to keep my arms straight and let the boat do it. Now, little did I know that I would meet my wife-to-be six months later, and she was a legend on that lake of being able to slalom. And you, you have to understand, Karen's never been big in sports or whatever, but we show up at seminary, and they're saying, man, you should have seen Karen like the first day. She was up on one ski. And I'm thinking, boy, that really touches me at my masculinity there. 
But, you know, our spiritual rising, our spiritual advancement, the core of that is the power of God. He's the boat that's pulling us. But, But there is a distinction from water skiing in this. We do participate in it. Look at Philippians 2, verses 12 um, through 13. The chapter before this, chapter 2. Therefore, my dear friends, Philippians 2, 12, just as you've always obeyed, so now not only in my presence, but even more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. He's not speaking of work salvation because look at the next verse. For it is God who is working in you both to will and to work according to his good purpose. And so this progress toward Christ's likeness, God is working in our lives and we're cooperating with him. We're, we're obeying. That's why we see so many commands for us as Christians. If we were just to stand back and, and let God do all of it, we would not progress. Now, understand this. Our justification is solely a work of God. But our sanctification, we participate through our obedience in our growth. Now, notice the effort that Paul speaks of in his spiritual growth. He says, assuming that I will, verse 11, somehow reach, that is, attain to the resurrection among the dead. Verse 12, not that I've already reached the goal, I'm already perfect, but I make every effort. That idea is Dioko, which means to pursue um, uh, aggressively. Verse 13, uh, brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself to have taken hold of it. That idea of taking hold, if, if you've ever been in a grocery store and there's something on the top shelf, it means reaching up and bringing it down to yourself. And he says in Uh, verse 13 also reaching forward to what is ahead the picture is that of a sprinter stretching out toward the finish tape in verse 14 he uses the verb pursue I pursue that's the same word uh, that's used in verse 12 all of these action words so Paul is not saying I'm just going to sit back and just by some um, miracle progress in the faith no He's speaking of his own participation in that. I wonder today, in what way are you participating with God in your growth toward Christ's likeness? Are you spending time in his word or not? Are you spending time in prayer? And when the Holy Spirit, when he speaks to you, convicting you of sin, do you take active steps to address that stronghold of that issue in your life or do you remain indifferent? We're to participate. But there's a third thing in our growth toward Christ's likeness. And not only do we need to know the goal, not only do we need to pursue it with Christ, but we're to maintain our humility. Humility is essential in the Christian life. Of humility, Jonathan Edwards, the great preacher, said, nothing sets a man out of the devil's reach so much as humility. And we can turn that around in a positive thing. Nothing puts a man more in reach with God than humility. Consider this, the potter can do more with moist clay. Uh, uh, And God can do more with a heart that is yielded to him. Do you want to know the most quick way 
to hinder your progress toward Christ's likeness. It's this, think you've already arrived. Here was Paul, an apostle of the apostles. Paul, who in Galatians spoke of himself having the boldness and the authority and the position to address the great Peter when Peter was out of line. A man, Paul, who wrote almost half the books of the New Testament, and look at what he says, verse 12, not that I have already reached the goal or am already perfect. In other words, that, that first past tense, not that I've already reached the goal, is, is what's called the heiress, which means it happens in a point in time. It's, it's historical. He said, not when I was saved at my justification was I complete and what God desires me to be. And he says, not only that, or am already perfect, which is the past perfect, which speaks of from that time forward. So he's saying basically in verse 12, not when I first became a Christian was I everything God wanted me to be, nor as much as I'm serving Christ now have I reached that. Paul is looking at his life and he's saying, I'm not a building that's completed on which the contractor can cross his arms and look back satisfied with the finished product. In fact, in verse 13 he says, I do not consider myself to have taken hold of it. The mature Christian knows that he or she has not arrived. You know, many times we like to compare our spirituality to others, not to Christ. The goal is Christ-likeness. But many times we'll compare ourselves and we'll say, well, I'm better than that person that's at church. I'm, I'm better than this person in my Sunday school class. I like what a lady, lady Marissa Meyer said. It, it amused me, but it, it addresses this point. She said, if you're the smartest person in the room, you're in the wrong room. Sanctification never means perfection in this age, and glorification will attain that. But right now, we're on a journey. The first of Martin Luther's 95 theses said this, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed the entire life of the believer to be one of repentance. In other words, he didn't say just repent at conversion and you never have to repent again or repentance is something you did when you thought you were less spiritual. The very first one says that repentance is a continual thing. That means that we never reach perfection in this state. We should be growing toward that, but it will only come at glorification. God's word tells us this. God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. I wonder today, would you say to God, I'm not where I need to be? God, again, opposed the Pharisees, but gave grace to sinners. But there's a fourth thing. Stay current in your faith. How many times do you turn on the computer and you try to see a, a video and the thing's buffering and you're saying, come on, come on, catch up, catch up to it. And uh, when I had worse internet, I, I would struggle with that. If I'd try to watch a sporting event or something or replay of it, I, I, would, I would wait for it to get up to speed. God desires us in our spiritual lives to be current in our faith, up to speed. That means that we not rest on our past laurels. 
believe it was Condoleezza Rice that said, I believe it may have been at a graduation, she says, I firmly believe you should never spend your time being the former anything. Paul had just listed a great recitation of religious accomplishments we looked at last week of the tribe of Benjamin, a Pharisee of Pharisees in regard to zeal persecuting the church, all of these attributes, all of these things, but he after reciting them, said they mean nothing. We're not to rest on our past laurels. When we start to focus on what we did for the Lord last week or last year or last decade, we're getting our eyes off of the goal, which is toward Christ-likeness. But even more importantly, we're not to be defeated by our past failures. One of Satan's greatest tools, oh, I know what you did then, when you were a teenager, when you were a young adult, back last year, his favorite activity is to haunt us with our past. And I like the person who said, the preacher who said this, I don't remember, but you probably have heard it. When the devil reminds you of your past, you remind him of his future. This is a very serious issue in the Christian life, and it can hinder our growth. And the devil's looking for any crevice in our lives to begin to haunt us with our past, to begin to say, you're not all that, you can't be all that. And we, in the, need, in the name of Christ, need to say, get thee behind me, Satan. Christ paid the price for my past. I'm living in the present with a view to the future. Whether it be good accomplishments or haunt, or haunting failures, Paul said this in verse 13, one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and reaching forward to what is ahead. We learn from our past, but we don't live in our past. In sanctification, it's all about the present, right where you are. God desires you and I consecrate our lives to him right now. And then in verses 15 and 16, Paul closes. I like verse 15. Therefore, let all of us who are mature think this way. And if you think differently about anything, God will reveal this also to you. Paul is confidently asserting what he's saying. He said, if you're mature, you'll understand this. And if you don't get it, God will convict you of it. I think it was J. Vernon McGee that said, you have a right to your belief. He said, you have a right to be wrong. Everybody has a right to be wrong. But here what Paul is saying is if you're mature, you'll understand what I'm saying. You're to keep your eye on the goal. You're to forget what's behind. You're to humbly pursue that goal. But if you do not get this now, I have the confidence in God that he'll convict you that what I'm sharing with you is true. And then finally in verse 16, he says, In any case, there it is, we should live up to whatever truth we have attained. We're to stay current in our faith we're not to revert back to what we were last year what we were before god's spirit convicted us in a specific area we're not to revert back to uh, before we knew a certain truth of god sanctification is moving forward toward christ likeness god doesn't care about the past he has control of the future god is dealing with you currently where you are you know, A.W. Tozer was truly one of the most influential Christian statesmen of the 20th century. Born in 1897 in a rural area of western Pennsylvania, he had very little formal education, but that did not 
matter to him because what he lacked in school knowledge, he did experience in the personal knowledge of Christ. He devoted himself constantly to the study of God's word and understanding it and living it out. If you've never read A.W. Tozer, any of his works, I would encourage you to do that because he was all about what Paul is writing about here. But near the latter part of A.W. Tozer's life, he said this, no one has the right to die until he has served his generation. And then regarding his own life culmination right near the end of his life, he said, pray that I will not just come to a wearied end, an exhausted, tired, old preacher interested only in hunting a place to roost. He said, no, pray that I will let my Christian experience and Christian standards cost me something even up to my last breath. At his funeral, one of his children, I think he had seven children, but his daughter said this, and to be honest, Tozer was so committed to the Lord that sometimes he lacked the attention to his family. But his daughter understood because at his funeral, she said this, I cannot be sad because my father lived for this all of his life. He lived with the goal of being with Christ. I wonder today, are you living with such a spirit? Are you forsaking the past, good or bad? Are you living up to what you have attained? Are you building on the things as God's revealing knowledge to you? Are you applying that knowledge practically to your life? Are you pressing toward Christ-likeness with great fervor? That's the call that Paul gives us here. People, we've got to press on. We've got to move on. In some days, we're not going to feel it. It's not about feeling. Some days you get up, you don't feel like reading God's word. Some days you get up, you don't feel spiritual. But keep your eyes on the prize. Keep your eyes on being like Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the word today. And Lord, I pray that you would speak to our hearts. For those of us who have trusted Christ, that Lord, we would take what you teach us in your word and apply it. Lord, pursue it. Lord, take hold of it. Father, help us to forget the things that would pull us down and to set our sights toward Christ's likeness. And Lord, I lift this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.